about to look at the uh, soundtrack. Probably would have used it for episode one review as well. But here we are. Yeah, homie, so welcome back. This is now day two of the Echo season one review. I don't know if there'd be a season two. It is a miniseries. Miniseries typically don't get multiple seasons. But alas, you guys get the point. Here we are for Echo episode two. There we go. Uh, titled Loak. Uh, I reviewed episode one yesterday, and I uh, I'm gonna get into you know my my thoughts again on that really quickly before we jump in, into episode two here. It was interesting. I was looking at the uh, at the, uh, the the musical playlist for the Echo uh, Echo TV show, and I saw that it was actually uh, composed by Dave Porter. Dave Porter is a Pretty darn good television composer. Uh, he did the likes of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and I really like the music for both of those shows. So uh, I don't think it's, it's too big, too much of a surprise that I like the music for Echo as well. I think that it's very it's very fitting. It has a lot of uh, uh, kind of like Native American undertones to it, but in a darker kind of grittier sense, something that kind of really matches the tone of where they're going for with this TV show. But enough about the music and whatnot. I know where you guys are here. I know why you dirty, dirty people are here. You don't want to hear me talk about musical composers and TV shows that are unrelated to the topic at hand here. You want to hear the, uh, the nitty gritty of the matter. Echo episode two was it any good. Does it hold up? Does it carry on the mostly goodness from episode one? Well, we're about to get into it. Uh, so without further ado, the second shorty, two days in a row. Let's get into uh, Echo, episode two, season one. Uh, but to kick things off properly, for those of you who are new here, you picked an odd point to start. You could have started with uh, the review for episode one, but yet here you are. But for everyone else, welcome back to another episode of the Superhero Homies Podcast. My name is Quentin. I will be your solo dolo host today. And we're going to have some fun, guys. So, this was a shorter episode by a considerable amount. I think, without the credits, episode one clocks in at about 47 minutes. And episode two, without the credits, clocks in at around 36 minutes. So, we lose about 10 minutes. And episode two, I, after watching episode two, there's a lot of questions that come to mind, by the way, full spoilers. I forgot to say that at the beginning of last night's uh, recording, but there will be full spoilers. After watching episode two, I do wonder if there were pieces of this show that were left on the cutting room floor. Like, I know that there's always, obviously because of, of editing, there's always something left on the cutting room floor. But I wonder, like, were there significant portions of this TV show that was cut and scrapped and then kind of repurposed or reused? Um, the formatting of the show is just a little awkward for me. Like, I get that it's a miniseries and that we live in a day and age where things don't have to be so static anymore where TV shows aren't required to be either 30 minutes or 45 minutes, 40 minutes or an hour. TV shows can be whatever length the studios want them to be. 
uh, because there are no blockchain or no, no block sessions for commercials or anything like that. And they can just kind of do their own thing. They can make the TV shows the lengths that they need to be. And looking at this Echo TV show, I, I went ahead and looked at the run times for the rest of the episodes. And uh, there are all like the remaining three episodes are like 44 minutes and then 39 minutes and 37, something like that. And so none of them are particularly long. And, you know, my whole thing is I don't need it to be long. I don't need it to be, I don't need it to be short. I just need it to be the appropriate length to tell the story the way that it needs to be told and to give time for characters to grow the way that they need to properly grow. With all that being said, episode two was titled Lowak. And did Lowak live up to episode one, which was titled Chaffa? Yes. Well, uh, I'll go ahead and be honest and rip the band-aid off here. No, I don't think episode two was very good. Uh, and, and we'll get into those reasons here shortly. So, episode two starts off. I couldn't help but laugh just looking at like the way that they presented the information. Episode two starts off at 1200 AD. It's a long time ago. That's about the time that your grandmama was was uh, born. Ah, I burned you. 1200 AD, but not just any 1200 AD. This was 1200 AD in Alabama. <laughs> That's just fucking hilarious to me. I don't know why that shit made me laugh. I'm <laughs> just thinking about Alabama uh, in the year 1200 AD. I don't, I don't, I don't know why that shit just cracks me up. Like, I wonder is as much changed. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, guys. For those of you who are listeners in Alabama, I don't mean any harm. I, listen, I'm from Georgia, so I have no room to talk about you know, uh, in any other states in the South. You got me. Uh, anyways. Kind of my first note here, though, is that, man, so even as far back as 1200 A.D., people from Alabama were obsessed with football uh, <laughs> because uh, I don't know how to describe the game that they're playing here. And it probably is like some kind of real uh, game that was played or that is played. But I don't know exactly what this game is. And the TV show doesn't necessarily try to tell you. But if I'm if I'm being honest, I I don't care. <laughs> Uh, it, it didn't really like they, they didn't really care to tell me about it, about what it was or what the objectives was. And I get it. Like, you got to get the ball on the other side. Hell, it, it really is kind of like rugby football esque type deal. But they're playing the game. Right. And listen, I when I say what I'm what I'm about to say, I do not mean to come across as like brash or, or rude or anything of the such. Uh, it's just I've seen a lot of television and I've experienced a lot of stories. And at a certain point, some things become very tropey and formulaic. And for me, this is kind of one of them. It was the the classic kind of cliche David versus Goliath type story. Right. So. You got two teams, the red team and the blue team. And the red team is stomping the blue team. And then uh, <laughs> and like once the the blue team is down like eight to two or whatever, they call in the big dog 
And he's just sitting in the locker room looking like a badass. And so the blue team, they go and they get their secret weapon. They go get their, they get, they go get their fucking Michael Jordan or this is football. So I guess they go get their fucking Tom Brady. And, and, you know, they frame him so that he looks like bigger than everyone else. And he's kind of ferocious and he's fucking ready for war. And as soon as they did the framing for team against team, you know exactly what was going to happen. So on the blue team, they're framed to, to be more ferocious looking, more mean. And you got the big mean guy who they just called in. And on the red team, they're not unassuming, but they're clearly framed as the under, as the underdogs. And the person who was standing to oppose the big scary dude on the blue team is, is just an average looking woman. And I'm like, okay, let me guess. Uh, the the blue team or, or the red team is going to have their Mighty Ducks moment. And, and this chick is going to have her David and Goliath moment. And she's going to topple this guy. And she's going to win for her team. Lo and behold, wouldn't you, wouldn't you believe what happened? Uh, I promise you I am not a psychic. I have not seen this previously. It's just... Again, man, it's just at this point, I'm tired of seeing this. Like if, if you're going to do this trope, right, if you're going to be this kind of formulaic with with your cold openings of all the things you're going to do this with your cold openings, then it, at least spice it up. Like make that shit as as rule of cool as you possibly can. But I mean, ultimately, they're just playing a version of rugby football uh, with with sticks and whatnot. And and so, I mean, there wasn't really too much they could do. Like, they just, you know, they just pre- presented the story as is. And, and yeah, the, uh, the, the, the lady on, on the red team, whose name is Loak, she wins it for her, her team. Lo and behold, no one saw it coming. Um, but, yeah, I don't know, man. But, but at this point, I was starting to see what they're doing here with these flashbacks to the uh, Native Americans from way back when, you know, they're telling uh, stories of old or, or, you know, folklore or, you know, tales passed down and, and they're, they're framing them in this TV show as some type of pseudo lessons for our protagonist. Um, I, I wish it were simply that, but as we get, Throughout this episode, and to a certain point in this episode, we'll see that, nope, they have completely jumped the fucking shark. Okay, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and there were stakes to this game, right? So, they weren't just playing this game for, you know, like, fucking Alabama versus Clemson or whatever. Like, this was actually uh, uh, pretty high stakes, all things considered. I believe the stakes were the loser leaves town. So if you guys ever watch any old school wrestling, like back in the territory days, then you're familiar with this, this concept, the loser leaves town. Uh, you know, the two wrestlers, two wrestlers have a match and one of the guys obviously has to lose and he has to leave the territory. And that just means that guy goes to a different territory and, and wrestles there. Uh, but obviously that's not really the case here. Uh, one of these teams lose, then that team has to clear out of Alabama, I guess. <laughs> Ancient Alabama. Uh, and down here in my notes, I just have written down why. Like, why did we get this scene? Like, why? 
it, it's, it's kind of baffling, right? Uh, like, why was this shit necessary? And listen, I've uh, I as I've grown in like my my podcasting years, I actually have grown to be more forgiving, to be more gracious. But I cannot turn my brain off to just shit that is irrelevant to what this story is trying to do. You know what I mean? Like nothing about this really helped push the the main plot of this story forward. You know, it, so it, it just it doesn't it baffles my mind as to why this shit just kind of makes it through. And it makes you wonder what didn't make the final cut for this TV show if this made it in. Uh, anywho, Biscuit, who, as you guys may remember, is the cousin of Maya. Uh, he goes shopping to get Maya a list of things. Obviously, Maya, she is on the run and she can't be seen in town or she's trying to keep a low profile. She's doing a really shitty job of it, though. She went to like the, the skate rink and the previous episode. And when she went to the skate rink, she didn't try to conceal her identity or, or anything. Everyone kind of saw her, saw her. And as a matter of fact, the uh, the guy who was working the register, he tested someone about a bounty on Maya. So, uh, yeah, good job, Maya, keeping that low profile. Anywho, Biscuit goes shopping for her, and he goes to, uh, I don't know what this is, some kind of pawn shop or some kind of uh, all-purpose type shop, you know, one-stop shop type place. And it's ran by a guy named Scully. And uh, Scully is selling little, you know, knickknacks, odds and ends, and, and apparently also uh, spy cameras as well. He's selling some of everything. Um, and after kind of uh, after Scully and Biscuit fleece this uh, uh, kind of naive uh, white couple <laughs> to buying some, uh, they pass a persuasion check to get the, this this white couple to buy some some pottery or whatever. Biscuit then uh, asks Scully if he has any kind of any kind of cameras, but he needs small cameras. And and Scully pulls out a small camera, and then Biscuit says smaller. So Scully pulls out a smaller camera, and then Biscuit says something like it needs to be like the size of a hummingbird's tongue. And then wouldn't you fucking know it? Scully pulls out this goddamn sky uh sky uh, spy camera. And I'm like, you just got this shit laying around? Like, what does Scully know that I don't know? Like, there's something going on with this guy. If he just have, he just so happens to have this shit uh, ready on deck. But you know, whatever, whatever. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna trip over that too hard. Uh, we don't really get to see what else Biscuit gets from Maya, but apparently he gets enough shit to make, I don't know, uh, ex- explosives <laughs> from Maya. We'll get there when we get there. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I, I'm so I'm going to keep it uh, real with you guys. I don't have a whole lot of notes for this episode because not a whole lot of things of importance happens. So, uh, th- and again, this episode was only like 36 minutes. So this review will probably only end up being like 46 minutes. You know, I got to go longer than than the actual TV show and or movie. That's, that's kind of our thing here. Yeah, so moving forward. Maya jumps off a, a goddamn bridge and she lands on a train. Uh, is she impervious to pain? We'll get there. But at least when she jumped off of, you know, the bridge onto a train, it wasn't like she just fucking ran and dove off of the bridge, you know, free falling. 
and superhero landing on the train. No, no, no. This is more of a uh, Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible type thing where it's like, okay, with like proper training, like you might be able to pull this shit off. Which does lead me into like another problem with uh, that I have with this show, and that is, what is Maya's background? What is her training? Okay, so like in episode uh, one of this show, I was willing to forgive a lot of things that she was doing because I was under the assumption at first that she had been directly under Kingpin's tutelage for years. Uh, But that was just me assuming that they were going to kind of follow the path of the comic books more so than uh, doing their own thing. But no, looking at episode one, it becomes very clear that she really hasn't been working for Kingpin that long. She couldn't have been like the like the time frame doesn't really add up. You know, it's like her dad dies and was killed by Ronan, which would have put it maybe five years ago. Right. And then assuming that she goes to work for Kingpin directly after her father is killed. That means that she's got. I don't know, maybe five to seven years, a certain type of training. But then, you you know, you have to wonder like, okay, is what type of training is that? And, and what type of ops has she been running for the Kingpin that she just has all of this information and experience at her disposal. So let, let me, let me, you know, make it straight here. So when I see her kicking ass in the Hawkeye TV show or in episode one of her own show, I didn't bat an eyelash. That is very on brand for the character. And and also we know that she has been training to fight since she was a little girl. So we know that she is very capable in fisticuffs. We know that she can handle herself. So that's not a surprise. That is not only not only is that not a surprise, this is what I expect to see from Echo. You know, amongst other things, but uh, you know, Marvel being Marvel definitely decided to, to take a lot of liberties with the character. Um, and so I, I really have to like turn, I don't even sound right saying this, I have to turn my comic book brain off when I watch this comic book TV show. But this isn't the first time I've had to do this with a superhero product and it won't be the last, unfortunately. Uh, so anywho, yeah, I was just wondering, man, how did she know how to do this type of stunt? But whatever. So, yeah, she jumps off the bridge, lands on the train, and then it maybe I missed something because maybe I was taking notes when this happened, right? But apparently she did end up planting some sort of explosive on this. But I only saw her snake the camera uh, into the train cart. She was underneath the train at this point, by the way. Uh, <laughs> very bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. Uh, she snakes the... Uh, the camera onto the train and she's recording the crates. Uh, at least that's what I, I thought she was doing. I thought she was just doing like surveillance to see maybe get an idea of what Fisk was shipping. I still don't know what Fisk was shipping, but it was something. And, uh, but apparently she also left a little surprise on there as well. That's right. She took a shit on the train. <laughs> no, no. She, uh, apparently left some kind of explosive device on the train. Um, I want to be very clear about this. Again, let me be clear, my fellow Americans, uh, and wherever else you're listening from. I said something similar in episode one, but 
I need to know that the writers are aware of what they're doing. If they are, then I've got no problems. If they are not aware, there's some big issues here. Maya is not behaving like a hero. She's behaving like a villain who has a problem with another villain. And as long as the writers are aware of that, I have no issue with what she's doing. But if I am supposed to leave these episodes feeling like she is, in fact, a good person, then this TV show has failed entirely. Uh, She's not afraid to kill people, not afraid to put other people at risk. She's not worried or afraid about any of that. Now, again, as long as the TV show is aware how they're presenting her, then I have no problems. That is A-OK. Because, again, that is on brand for the character. But if they think that she's looking like some kind of, uh, I don't know, fucking super strong, go get them girl, positive influence, then they've completely jumped the fucking shark. <laughs> but we actually haven't gotten to the to the shark jumping scenes yet. The shit that just made me pause the TV show and go get a drink. Um, yeah, so the next thing that happens here is that her, uh, her prosthetic leg is caught between the, cha- uh, the train platforms, between the carts, and I was like, well, shit, that is a shitty situation for Maya, but on the bright side, at least it is the prosthetic leg and not her actual leg, because that would have been even worse, you know? Um, but then... Okay, uh, all right, I got this, I got this. But then she channels the strength of her ancestors and she's able to free uh, the, the remains of the prosthetic leg from the contraption and she looks at her hands as they have a golden hue and glow to them. Episode one felt like a Marvel TV show. It felt like it was a superhero TV show. Episode two feels like they said, all right, enough of that shit. Let's just do our own fucking thing here. And nine times out of 10, unless you are James Gunn, when you greatly deviate or depart from the comic books, whether that be story or whether that be character traits, personality or overall integrity, they have a terrible track record. And this is kind of continuing that. So I was trying to save a lot of the discussion about how echo actually is in the comic books. I was trying to save that until uh, Monday when I do the review of, of her first appearance in the comic books in the Marvel Knights Daredevil run. Um, but man, some things need to be said now. Uh, she does not have any Bruce Leroy soul glow powers. All right. Her powers are more akin to Taskmaster. And, and I mean, Taskmaster from the comic books, again, not Taskmaster from the Black Widow movie. Jesus Christ, Marvel, get your goddamn shit together. Um, I'm tired of fixing your shit. <laughs> 
Anywho, uh, yeah. So her her power set is more more of that of of extreme mimicry. Like she has the ability to look at how something is being done, and she can replicate it to damn near perfection. Uh, early on in her first appearance, you see that she the one one of the reasons why she is so good at at hand to hand combat is because she studied. Not only did she study boxers, she didn't study boxers like Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield or any of like, you know, the heavyweights. She studied the boxers in, in the lighter weight classes so that she could more eth- efficiently emulate them and their technique. You know, it doesn't matter if you study Tyson's technique. If you don't have Tyson's power, then it's not going to fucking matter. And so she studied a lot of um, a lot of boxers who were in the lighter weight classes so that she could emulate their style and technique. And she used that to great effect, uh, which I always thought was, again, a really interesting mirror to Matt Murdock, uh, who took up boxing for a different reason. Matt kind of did it to take up for his dad, you know, just something to remember his dad by. Uh, But anyways, what I'm getting at here is that her powers never really included fucking whatever this show is doing right now, which I guarantee you, they would be vague and ambiguous superpowers because, again, every time the MCU deviates from the comic books, especially when it comes to power set, they just become fucking vague and ambiguous and you don't really know exactly what is supposed to fucking be. So would it be Shang-Chi and the 10 magical sonic rings that they try to convince you are the 10 rings that the Mandarin uses in the comic books? That shit is so far away from what it's supposed to be that it just feels so disingenuous and lazy. Or would it be Moon Knight, who, again, the version of Moon Knight that they're using classically has no real actual superpowers. He's just a fucking halfway psychopath (laughs) who uh, throws caution to the wind. And... I mean, he, yeah, he's just an extreme fighter. He's really, really good at fighting. You know, that's that's kind of his thing. You can you fucking shoot him, and he's going to go down, you know. But instead, the show gave him, again, vague, ambiguous superpowers that you can't really tell where they begin or end, you know. Uh, and, I mean, there's several other instances here, but if I were to go through all of the instances where the MCU have, has just changed shit for the sake of it, then I would be here until it's time to record tomorrow's episode. Um, anywho, yeah, so, yeah, uh, Maya has these uh, magical, mystical superpowers now, um, which was interesting, right, because she doesn't really seem to, she doesn't really seem that flabbergasted by it, you know? Like, if, if I did some shit like that, you know, some something that required, like, super feats of strength, and then I look down and my hands are glowing and I see like the faces of my ancestors. I'm like, what the fuck? The fuck is going on here? Uh, I kind of be tripping balls, you know? Uh, so anywho, yeah, Maya, she then drum- jumps from the top of the train to the truck that Biscuit is driving. And uh, don't worry, guys. She's fine. All right. Uh, maybe it's the superpowers kicking in. But she's absolutely fine. Not a scratch on her. She is as, as good as can be. Um, Yeah, as you guys can tell, that also kind of irked me. I'm like, okay, you're not even going to sell that it hurt? Like, okay. 
Uh, yeah, so next scene here, the uh, the the train with the uh, with the crates reaches its destination, and upon opening the crates, it explodes, killing who knows how many people. And the next note I have here is less of a statement and more of a question. I, I don't know if it's supposed to be ambiguous because I, I very well could have just missed some information here. Uh, but does Henry, does he work for Fisk Shipping Company? Um, because the whole reason that Maya did this was to. Hang on. Wait, wait, wait. So I was going to say this. The only reason that Maya did this, you know, planting the explosives on the crate is to strike back at Fisk, you know, just to show her disdain and, and to disrupt his business. But at this point, she thinks he's dead, right? Or, or how, and, and, but if she doesn't think that Fisk is dead, then how the fuck does she know that he's still alive? Like, no one's told her this, right? Again, I could have missed something. I could have missed some some crucial piece of exposition that can make all this go away. But after this recording, I am going to confidently say that I do not believe I have missed that crucial piece of information. Uh, yeah. So I'm not uh, I'm not too sure what the purpose of this was. Right. So like at the end of episode one, it sounded like she wanted to take his spot. You know, because she, she said the whole line about New York has had a, a kingpin. Now it's time for a queen. I mean, I guess I guess that could be interpreted different ways. But to me, that sounds like I'm gunning for his spot. Like I gunned his fucking head. You know, that's what that sounds like to me. And again, I'm not mad at that premise, but they just did very little to show me that that would ever be Maya's uh, her goal. I never got that from episode one of this show. That never really seemed to to be her dig. Uh, but as of now, it seems like she's just looking to disrupt uh, Fisk organization. And, and again, I have to ask why. Because if, if you're doing this and you're under the assumption that Fisk is dead, then what's the fucking point? He's dead. Like, there is no greater victory you can have over Fisk than killing him. And if somehow, some way through the grapevine, you've learned that this man has survived, then why would you shake the hornet's nest? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just, I have, uh, I have questions that uh, aren't being answered. But hey, we've got three more episodes. Okay, maybe this episode is just a lull, and they're gonna pick back up for episodes. Uh, three, four, and five. Uh, but yeah, so is Henry, is he working for Fisk Shipping? I, I genuinely don't know. Don't know. It seemed like he is. Uh, Henry, by the way, for those of you who don't remember, he was the guy uh, that I thought was the owner of the skating rink. Maybe he is. I don't know what the fuck this guy is, but uh, Maya trusts him, so they're friends or family some kind of way. But I'm like, why does she trust this guy? Because as soon as the crates exploded, Somebody who either works for or or works with Henry called Henry to notify him of the incident at Fisk Shipping. And then Henry, you know, drives out there and then he immediately tries to get Maya on the phone. Uh, and it seems like he just has some kind of big, important part to play in Fisk Shipping. 
again, uh, I might have just missed something, but we'll see as episodes go on here. Maybe Maya is using Henry as a guy on the inside. Uh, that could very well be the case, and in, in, in which you know that makes her plan slightly less dumb, but still pretty fucking dumb. All right, moving on here. Maya goes to Scully's shop uh, for a leg repair. Uh, Scully is uh, this show doesn't have a a uh, a guy in the chair, so to speak. You know how in most TV shows and movies of this nature, there is what they call a guy in the chair, and that's the person who sits behind the computer and they can hack into everything and they can look up everything and find information to give to the hero. Uh, this show doesn't really have a, a guy in the chair. Thank fucking God. It doesn't need one. Um, but it does have a Scully and Scully's kind of like Mr. McGuffin. So if the show needs something, then Scully can get it. Uh, <laughs> do you need a fucking hummingbird spy camera? Scully's got you. Do you need someone who can magically fix a prosthetic leg? Scully's got you. Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah, so uh, Scully's just kind of a catch-all, I suppose. Uh, Scully and Maya discussed Chaffa. Chaffa. Uh, that was the Native American woman who we saw in the cold opening of episode one, who saved the rest of the people from the cave. And then after that, they became human. So I do, uh, I do give this episode props for at least further uh, expounding upon what we saw in that cold opening. Uh, I mean, there were enough context clues to kind of put it together, but to, you know, to kind of hear it stated somewhat plainly, you just kind of solidified any kind of questions that anyone would have had about that code opening. So, yeah, uh, so we just got a little bit more information about Chaffa, and, you know, apparently uh, Maya's family, they have the ability to trace their lineage all the way back to Chaffa. So... Uh, so again, yeah, Maya's just uh, drawing on the strength of her ancestors, I suppose. There. Um, all right, so moving on here. Uh, Biscuit accidentally tells Bonnie that Maya is in town. Because of course he would. Uh, Biscuit, you know, he's that type of character who's supposed to be comic relief. You know, he's kind of bumbling and stumbling and he means well, but, uh, you know, he... He succeeds when the show needs him to, uh, but otherwise he's kind of like the, the bumbling kind of guy, you know. Um, yeah, so he's trying to sell his PlayStation 4 for $125, and then he lowers it to $100. And he's doing this over, like, the, uh, the, the radio at the shop. He had to take his mom's truck to the shop because it got banged up in the train heist. And the train not heist because technically nothing was stolen. Uh, and, and so he took the truck to the repair shop and over like the CV radio, he's trying to sell off his PlayStation to help pay for the repairs for the truck. And in doing so, Bonnie, who is Maya's cousin, who they have like a really close friendship, who they haven't seen each other in 20 years. Uh, Bonnie, she's at the firehouse. That's where she works as a, uh, as a fireman, uh, or firefighter, firefighter, I should say. And, uh, over the CV radio, she hears, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Biscuit talking about, 
he's trying to sell off sell off the PlayStation, and and so uh, Bonnie picks up uh, the radio and and she's talking to him about what happened, and he's like, "Yeah, I broke the truck because I'm a dumbass, and I'm trying to sell my PlayStation to pay for repairs, and blah blah blah, and Maya's in town, and blah blah blah." And so he accidentally lets it slip that Maya is in town when Maya explicitly asked him not to tell uh, Bonnie that she is in town. She actually didn't want Biscuit telling anyone, but especially Maya. Uh, And listen, okay, so... Boy, there's a lot to unpack right here. This... None of this helps the lingering feeling I had when I reviewed episode one where I said, man, it feels like there's some weird romantic chemistry there. Now, hear me out. Maya and Bonnie, if their ancestors are in fact from ancient Alabama, then that would make sense as to why there's some type of sexual familial tension going on there. That is a thing in Alabama. All right. I'm joking, all right? I'm joking. So, no one from Alabama. I'm, I'm, y'all know the fucking rumors about, about you guys over there, all right? Don't be mad at me. I didn't make up those rumors, all right? All right. Cousin fucking motherfuckers. Uh, <laughs> anywho, um, but yeah, no, there's still like a really weird tension that I don't understand. And... The beginning of episode one, you go back to that, and when you have little Maya and little Bonnie out in the tent, uh, they they do try really hard, really hard in a really limited amount of time to tell you that these two, they're technically cousins, but they have like the bond of like two sisters, like best friends. And again, I, I have to reiterate this: I have had, you know, best buddies when I was, you know, 10 years old or or whatever. And I haven't seen some of them in 20 years. And if I saw some of my old bosom buddies that I haven't seen in 20 years, you want to know what? Probably wouldn't fucking recognize them. All right. And if I did, it'd be like, oh, shit, what's up, man? And then that's about the extent of the conversation. I don't know why they're making such a big deal about their relationship in this TV show. I don't understand the, the, the kinship between Bonnie and Maya because even though they they told us and they didn't show us their about their you know their kinship, that's not enough to sell me on why Maya doesn't want to see Bonnie. I don't understand and and I also don't understand why Maya or or, or why Bonnie would be so intent on seeing Maya. I mean, I, I get it. Like, yeah, sure, that's family. We all have family that we haven't seen in damn near 20 years. And if we miss them coming through again, it's like, oh, well, that sucks. And then that's that, you know? So I'm not, I, I don't buy it. And it's not like they were adults or even young adults that, that grew apart. They were children. And children tend to get over that shit as they become adults. And I don't know, man, their relationship is just weird and I don't understand it and I don't buy it. So whatever they're doing here, man, it's not working with with the whole Maya and Bonnie thing. Again, it just feels more romantic than anything. 
which is fucking weird because they're cousins who call each other sister. And their ancestors are from Alabama. Uh, the last scene of this episode, we see Henry and Maya. <laughs> I could tell I was done with this episode by this point. Uh, I have written down here. Uh, Henry and Maya talk about stuff. <laughs> and that's all I wrote down. <laughs> I was done. I was donezo with this episode, man. I was ready for this to, to be over with. Um, and they just talked about Maya kicking the hornet's nest, fucking with Fisk business. And, you know, for all the reasons that I already talked about, it's an, it's an extremely dumb idea. Uh, and, and it doesn't make sense. And again, I don't want to retread old water again. She shouldn't know Fisk is alive. And if she does know Fisk is alive, why would you fuck with him? Letting him know where you're at and, and further angering him. You know, he has more men, more resources, more ways to kill you and the ones you love. So why? Why would you do this? It, it just, I don't know, man. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. You could have stayed in New York if you wanted to really fuck with Fisk. And if you still knew he was alive somehow, you didn't have to go back to Oklahoma to figure that shit out. Um, but yeah, so I don't trust Henry and I don't think anyone does like why I, I, yeah, he just gives off, uh, he just gives off betraying vibes. Like, I don't believe that this motherfucker is going to be loyal to Maya. And I mean, honestly, I wouldn't blame him if he isn't Fisk pays more and people are afraid of Fisk and Fisk can fucking find 18 different ways to kill you and your family and your dogs you know, so why would you want to fuck with Fisk? Uh, Henry also remarks that Maya and her quest for chaos and power makes her sound like Fisk, and she doesn't deny it. I uh, actually thought that was a good touch. Um, both Henry calling her out and her not denying it. She didn't say that Henry was right in his assumption, but she didn't deny it either. Uh, I thought that was a, uh, I thought that was actually a really cool, somewhat subtle touch. Um, I still don't particularly understand what Maya wants ultimately, because I'm not really, really even sure why she's doing this. Um, yeah, yeah. So this episode was extremely frustrating. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot about this that I loved. There wasn't a whole lot about this that I liked. There wasn't a whole lot about this that I could tolerate. I I really, really need them to turn this ship around for episode three. But most of the times, TV shows and whatnot, they have the turning radius of the Titanic. Not when it was floating, but like when it was beneath the, the ocean. You know, so <laughs> it's going to take at least one episode to try to turn the ship around, maybe one and a half episodes to try to turn the ship around to a place that looks like it could, it could end good. But we'll see. Um, I was very curious after watching episode one, how episode two would go because I, uh, I overall really enjoyed episode one. Again, I gave it an 8.3 out of 10. You know, I thought episode one was solid. But I also recognize that episode one was a, an origin story and a recapping on Echo's story. 
and that they only use like the last 10 minutes or so to give us the current setting and setup for the rest of the show. So, you know, I, I was a little nervous about that. And, and this episode kind of confer confirms why I was worried. Uh, yeah, I hate to do it, man, but I'm going to give episode two a 5.5 out of 10. Um, Hopefully, episode three is better. Uh, maybe you guys enjoyed it more than I did. Let me know. Uh, again, I really want to see this show do better because Marvel needs a, a really big win right now. Uh, and, you know, I'll say this. From a business standpoint, it was very smart to showcase Daredevil in the trailers. And it was really smart of them to showcase Kingpin and Daredevil in the first episode. Um, because of nothing else, you know, maybe people will talk about that, but I mean, that, that, and that's the craziest thing, right? Uh, getting Maya's origin was kind of the only interesting thing, like her actual plot so far moving forward. I, uh, I'm not digging it. I'm not digging it that much, but again, they still got three more episodes to sell me on this man. And hopefully they do, because I really do want this show to be good, but I can't lie to you guys, and I can't lie to myself. So, that is going to be it for my review for Echo, Episode 2, Loak. Let me know what you guys think. I'll be back again tomorrow with Episode 3, and we'll see what I think from there. You guys, take it easy. But until then, my name is Superhero Homie Q.